Kiora Kato, Ko Gwen Compton Tokoingua, and welcome to Local Aotearoa, New Zealand's first podcast dedicated solely to what's happening in the world of local government. Before we get going with the first ever episode of Local Aotearoa, I wanted to first apologise for any hiccups along the way. I've never been on a podcast before, let alone produced or hosted one myself, so I'm learning as I go and I'm aided by those great teachers known as Google and YouTube. So there's going to be hiccups and teething issues. For example, today I'm having to record in our front lounge, which is relatively close to a busy road, and that's because there's kids playing in the neighbour's yard behind the room I was going to use. Plus, there's going to be the occasional plane flying overhead too, so apologies in advance for a bit of extra atmospheric noise. So what is local Aotearoa? In essence, it will be a semi-regular podcast focused on local government in New Zealand, pitched at a reasonably high level. It will obviously be shaped somewhat by my own experience as a first-term councillor on the Carpety Coast District Council, but generally I'll be trying to look across the country to see what's going on. As I get a bit more experienced and savvy with podcasting, and if things are going well and you're enjoying the podcast, I'm hoping to start bringing on guests from local government from around the country so that they can share their perspectives too. I say semi-regular because I'm hoping to record an episode weekly, but the reality is, as it is for most councillors around the country, we do need to hold down other jobs in order to help feed the family and pay the mortgage, so the frequency of episodes might be a bit patchy at times depending on my workload across the board. As to what I want to achieve, in part I'm hoping to give local government a bit more of a profile and break down some of the misconceptions about it. I'm also wanting to shine some light on the big issues facing us as a sector, as they often have a significant impact on the communities we serve. This is especially important right now, because at the time of this recording, in September 2021, we're potentially facing the largest change to local government in more than three decades, with several big reform programs in the works. I'd also like to quickly thank a few people, especially my friends Matthew Beveridge, who came up with the name when uh, my original idea was used by another podcast, uh, actually a local government podcast in the UK, just a couple of months before I decided to embark on this. Uh, Matthew Floratus, who provided a lot of advice on equipment and software, and uh, Liam Hare as well, who, unbeknownst to him, actually inspired me to do this by showing how easy it was to set up your own podcast and get it started and get um, some good listenership. So in terms of a bit of background about me, I was born in Upper Hutt, I was raised in Wellington and have lived in Wellington, Melbourne, London, Martinborough and now Paraparaumu on the Kapiti coast where I've been since 2013. I'm married to Renee and she's a Kapiti local and we currently have two young boys, Alex and Leon. And uh, I apologise if you hear barking, that's our dog Max. He's out in the hallway at the moment, so he'll bark at any uh, big noisy tractors that come down our little street. And our cat Mika, if he tries to come in the uh, cat door as well, they don't get on, as you might imagine. Now, I have a Bachelor of Arts in History and Political Science from Victoria University of Wellington, not Wellington Uni, thank you very much. Over the years, I've worked as a supermarket assistant, a bank teller, a business banking manager, and that was before I embarked on a career in communications and government relations. And that's seen me work for ANZ, 
Telstra, the old mutual group, Tapapa, and Beef and Lamb New Zealand. I've also been self-employed and done a little bit of contracting over the years for various organisations and generally uh, some copywriting and communication strategy. I've spent some time as a stay-at-home dad as well, which was uh, great fun. But probably the most profile job, high-profile job I've had was looking after digital communications for Prime Ministers John Key and Bill English from 2014 through to 2017, which was an incredible experience. I'm a former member of the National Party, and if you've followed me on Twitter, you'd have seen I've been, um, I would say, I've parted ways with them quite significantly over the years. I've been involved with Change the New Zealand Flag campaign since around 2011, which was when I was over in Melbourne. And I'm involved with the New Zealand Republic campaign as well, which is advocating for a Kiwi as head of state rather than the British monarch. Locally, I run a campaign advocating for improved commuter and intercity, uh, intercity rail connections north of Waikanae, and that's slowly making progress with funding announced for the business case this year. And I'm also involved with KEDA, which is a, a local economic development association here on the Kapiti coast, and our local air cadets squadron, number 49 squadron. In 2019, I stood for the first time for local government and I contested the mayoralty and district-wide council spots here in Kapiti as an independent candidate. Now, I fell short of the mayoralty. Uh, it was 9,029 votes to my 8,058, which, to be perfectly honest, I was actually pretty stoked with that, um, to get that close as a first-time candidate. And given I didn't have much public profile before I announced my candidacy, you know, to get within 971 votes was a pretty good achievement for a first-time ad, I thought. But most importantly, I topped the district-wide ballot. And with Carpety using single transferable vote, which saw me being elected in the first iteration, um, and it took until the 13th iteration to elect another candidate, so that was actually a pretty cool result as well. Being on council has been simultaneously exhilarating and hugely frustrating too, which I think is a pretty universal experience for councillors, regardless of how long they've been around. Obviously, none of us expected to be dealing with the impacts of a global pandemic this term, so that's played havoc with a lot of the work we wanted to get underway earlier in the term, but it's also created an opportunity to do things differently. It was in part because of that frustration and the opportunity to do things differently, as well as the scale of the other changes facing local government, that actually led me to call for a, a Royal Commission into the sector in late 2020. Now, while I didn't get a public inquiry like I was after, in April 2021, Local Government Minister Nanaya Mahuta announced the review into the future for local government, which is basically what I wanted. Though the big question mark over it will be how politically sticky its eventual recommendations will be, especially if there's a change of government before those recommendations can be uh, adopted and implemented. And as a final disclaimer, it's important to note that this podcast is going to be my own personal view of things that are going on and not those of Carpety Coast District Council. So with introductions aside, today's episode is going to be a bit of a whirlwind tour of the state of local government in 2021. How we've gotten to this point, how big the sector is, what do we actually do, and what are the big changes facing us in the coming years? So how did we get to this point? 
Now I'll go over this in much greater detail further down the line, but the first thing to acknowledge is that Aotearoa New Zealand did have local government prior to the arrival of Europeans. Māori as mana whenua through their iwi, hapu and whānau relationships had their own delegations of authority within their tribal structures and this had been in place uh, for as long as they'd arrived in New Zealand um, around about the 12th or 13th century. So they had their own form of local government and local autonomy and exercised their own powers um, at different levels. And so that's really important to acknowledge that uh, this European-centric version of local government that we have now, it's not the first iteration of local government in New Zealand. Of course, all of that changed when Europeans arrived. And over the course of several decades, they imposed their forms of government on the country and, until recent history, effectively tried to ignore Māori governance structures within the uh, European forms of local government they brought in. The first of those forms of local government was the creation in 1853 of six provincial governments with the ability to form municipal corporations underneath them. So that was essentially a two-tier system between the provinces, which were essentially highly decentralised branches of what little central government the colony had at that point, and municipal corporations for the major settlements. For example, you had Wellington Province, which occupied the lower third of the North Island, and within it you had, at least from 1870, the Wellington City Corporation. Over the next couple of decades, there were various changes and dramas within the provincial government system. Four more provinces would be established, with one of those being disestablished. There is an amusing episode where the rivalry between Picton and Blenheim saw two rival provincial councils operating within Marlborough Province and various confrontations between the supporters of each of those towns. Now I can claim a family connection to this provincial government system and that's with my mum's family being related to Dr John Dorset, who was the colonial surgeon in Wellington at the time. And he was one of the leading campaigners for the establishment of representative government within the fledgling colony. Dr Dorset was eventually elected to the Council of Wellington Province and then his older brother William succeeded him to the Provincial Council of Wellington after Dr Dorset's death in 1856. Now the provinces themselves would meet their demise in 1876 when they were abolished and the government became much more centralised. A large part of the reason for this was financial in that the provinces had limited abilities to raise funds and people like colonial treasurer Julius Vogel wanted any raising of funds to go through the General Assembly. He, and that's what uh, Parliament was called at the time. It didn't become uh, formally be called Parliament for a while after that, even if it was, I guess, colloquially called Parliament in some situations. Now, Julius Vogel has a great quote about this situation, and it is, The provinces have broken down because of their coming into conflict with the colonial government on many points, and especially on points of finance. Their doom was only a question of time, when it became obvious that they could not raise their own revenue, that they had to look to the general government to supply deficiencies, and that they could not borrow without the colony becoming liable. Somewhat amusingly, I think Julius Vogel would have been able to say a similar thing about local government in 2021, even though, to be fair to us, we have a much greater ability to raise revenue and raise debt than um, 
the provinces did back in the day. If you're interested in reading more about the rise and fall of the provinces, I can highly recommend Dr. Andre Brett's Acknowledge No Frontier, The Creation and Demise of New Zealand's Provinces, 1853-76, and that goes into much greater detail about the provinces and all the various going-ons within them and how the system worked. Following on from the demise of the provinces, a system of councils and counties was put in place. And other than the odd change in terms of mergers or divisions and changing boundaries, um, and eventually trying to bring everyone under the same legislative framework uh, later on, that system largely stayed in place until 1989, which was when the next big reform to local government took place. That was in the final years of the fourth Labour government, They embarked on a breakneck speed review and reform of local government, bringing some 850 different councils, counties and various boards together into 86 councils, with a new two-tier system between regional authorities, which are your regional councils, and local authorities, which are your district and city councils. And in some instances, you had unitary authorities, which are combined regional and local authorities. So they have both those sets of responsibilities. Now other than some tinkering of what's in and out of the local government in the three decades since, the biggest change, and it was a a big change, the people of Auckland will tell you that, was the creation of the Auckland Super City in 2010, which saw the eight councils of the Auckland region amalgamated into the single Auckland council we know today. There's been some further attempts to amalgamate other councils over the years as well, uh, there's obviously the unsuccessful attempt in Wellington, uh, Wire Rapper as well, they looked at amalgamating those three councils, Nelson Tasman, Hawke's Bay and the West Coast, but those haven't really gotten anywhere for a variety of reasons, and not least because I believe people were sort of taking a wait and see approach to see what the results were of uh, Auckland's super city being formed. So that brings us to today. And as of 2021, Local Government New Zealand, which is this membership body that I think all councils in the country belong to, they state that there are 78 local, regional and unitary authorities across Aotearoa New Zealand. Together, those authorities are responsible for managing around $150 billion in community assets, and they invest $11 billion on behalf of our communities each year. So that equates to around about 11% of public spending in New Zealand, which is relatively low compared to, uh, I guess, the central government, central local government split overseas. Uh, for example, in Denmark, the split there sees, sees nearly two-thirds of public expenditure go through local government rather than central government. In terms of funding local government, 60% of our revenue, and this is across the whole sector, comes from rates, which is effectively a form of property tax. Though this, the percentage of it uh, varies greatly from council for council. Uh, for example, here in Carpety, it's upwards of about three quarters of our revenue. Now, the other two big sources of revenue across the sector as a whole are the sales of goods and services. Uh, so that's, for example, if a council owns a port or a major airport or some other um, profit-generating entity, and that makes up around 15% of revenues. And then there's grants and subsidies from central government, which make up around about 14%. So of all this talk of revenues, what do councils spend your money on? 
well, local government New Zealand breaks this down in more detail on their website, so I'd encourage you to go and have a look at that. But at a high level, local government spends money on environmental resource management, flood control, air and water quality, pest control, public transport and roads, parks and reserves, drinking water, wastewater and stormwater infrastructure, rubbish collection, libraries, community facilities like halls, swimming pools, museums and art galleries. They do district planning, um, they do social and economic development and there's there's obviously a lot more that goes on depending on what your, uh, your local authority is up to. So this does vary greatly from council to council and your local council's mileage may vary. The major pieces of legislation that determine what local government does and how it does it are the Local Government Act 2002, which sets out our powers and many of our processes and many of the planning and accountability mechanisms that we have in place. And one of the most topical areas within the Local Government Act is the four well-beings, which keep getting inserted into, then removed, then restored into the Local Government Act. And these are basically four considerations that we should apply to our decision-making about what Council is doing. So it's how well does a given decision impact things like your community's social, economic, cultural and environmental well-being. Even when these four well-beings were temporarily removed from the Local Government Act in an aim to try and encourage councils to focus on what's commonly called core infrastructure or core services, which is, I think is generally defined as roads, waters, parks, town planning and community facilities, councils still typically use those four well-beings as a lens for assessing what they were doing. Now the next piece of legislation uh, is the Local Electoral Act 2001 and that determines how councils run elections and currently this does differ from general elections for Parliament as the Electoral Commission does take a back seat in local body elections. So this results in a bit of variability um, in how local elections are run um, and they're carried out by postal voting but we sort of have a mixture of systems around the country so some councils use uh, FTP, first past the post, other councils use single transferable votes, um, that's what we use here in Carpety. Some councils have ward only councillors, so effectively they, they target a set geographical area, others might have at large councillors, so they cover the whole district. Here in Carpety we have a mixed system, we have five ward councillors covering four wards and we have five at-large councillors who cover the whole district and obviously the mayor as well who's elected at large. As a sector we do have a big challenge in terms of turnout in local elections with the average voter turnout across the country being only 41.7% in 2019. Now again this varies from place to place and jumps up and down depending on what the local issues are at any one time. So in Carpety, we had a turnout of 51.1% in 2013 when water meters were a major issue. But then that had fallen in um, 2019 to hit around that sort of national average when there weren't necessarily any big issues around. There's also a bit of a split between metro councils, uh, provincial councils and rural, rural councils in terms of voter turnout. Metro councils have averaged only around 38.2% turnout in 2019 while provincial councils got 46.7% and rural councils got 
Now, there's the Local Government Rating Act 2002. So that sets out local government's powers to raise revenue through rating tools. So essentially how we set property taxes. There's the Local Government Official Information and Meetings Act 1987. That's known as LAGOIMA. Uh, now it's somewhat similar to the Official Information Act, but it's tailored for local government's uh, specific circumstances, though I'm pretty sure that with 78 councils around the country, there are 78 different interpretations of that act. But basically, it outlines our responsibilities around uh, record keeping, how people can access information, um, how we record and uh, share what's gone on in our official meetings, how we run them, um, and the right of access of the public to that information. The Ombudsman does some pretty interesting work on this uh, and they carry out an ongoing review of councils around the country and their compliance with Lagoima. And they did a really interesting review into Christchurch City Council that was released in November 29, which gives some really good insight into the issues with council's varying levels of compliance with this act. And it's on the Ombudsman's website and I definitely recommend uh, for, to have a read of it because you understand some of I guess the pain points that uh, the public feels with the system but actually us as elected members feel with the system as well and I've been quite public about uh, my concerns around the overuse of closed door briefings versus public workshops. Now there's the Local Authorities Members Interest Act from 1968 which I think uh, from memory is subject to a member's bill in Parliament to update it. And this sets out the framework for managing uh, conflicts of interest and declaring them and those sorts of things. Now it doesn't quite line up with similar requirements for members of Parliament and I understand that that's part of what's being considered in terms of updating that piece of legislation. Now there's also a heap of other legislation local government is involved in, so I'm not pretending to list it all out in this, uh, but the Department of Internal Affairs has a pretty comprehensive list on their website. But we've obviously got big roles in terms of the Resource Management Act and the Building Act, uh, the Civil Defence Emergency Management Act, and, and we've got lots of uh, responsibilities in terms of transport, the various transport acts. Um, and yeah, I definitely encourage you get to go to the DIA website and have a look. You can see, I don't even think they've got an exhaustive list of all the pieces of legislation that feed into what local government does. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's some very large reforms in the works right now that will fundamentally change the way local government works if they're enacted. Now I call them the big three and they are the Three Waters Reform, the Resource Management Act Reform and the Review into the Future for Local Government. So as a somewhat brief summary of them and as, every, as everything in this first episode, I'm planning to go back in the future and dive into much more detail on each of these big reforms. We'll start with Three Waters. Now that's a proposal from central government to amalgamate each local authority's drinking water, wastewater and stormwater services and infrastructure into one of four large multi-regional entities. Now as one of the major sources of investment and revenue for councils, if this did happen, it would be a massive change to how we operate. Now as of the time of writing, central government has an initial proposal out there and they've announced various sweeteners um, which have been put in front of councils. And we have until the 1st of October 2021 to give our feedback on how to improve that proposal. Not to, uh, the government's view is that we shouldn't give them 
alternative proposals, but it's how to improve their proposal. But uh, I think, as you can imagine, councils are interpreting that instruction very broadly in terms of how we're giving our feedback. And we're just going through that process at the moment at Carpety Coast District Council. And obviously it's something that I've been talking about for quite a while. Um, and it's only now that I guess the rubber's about to hit the road that uh, the public's starting to get interested in it, which again is the reason why I'm, why I'm doing this podcast, to try and give these issues a bit more uh, prominence. So once we've given our feedback to the government by the 1st of October, Cabinet will then make final decisions on the proposal, including, and this is probably the most crucial part of it, whether councils will still be allowed to opt out of the amalgamation or not. Uh, at the moment, we're considered all opted in. Some councils have announced that they've opted out already prior to this 1 October deadline to give feedback. Some, some councils have asked for more time. Um, but we're sort of waiting to see what the government does in terms of that sort of thing. Because we don't don't yet have the full picture in terms of what the government's going to uh, lay on the table as the final deal that we'll hopefully be able to go out and consult with our communities. Now, if all goes as per the original schedule that we've had in place uh, from the government for a while, then councils should go out to their communities later this year to consult on whether they should be part of the new entities or not. Um, but that all depends on what central government decides to do and what they decide to allow. Uh, and so there might not be a consultation. There might be a consultation. Um, a number of councils might have to hold public referendums on the issue because for instance in, here in Carpety we have provisions in our standing orders those are the rules which determine how our council meetings are run and how we make decisions in them that if we were to make any changes to the ownership of our water infrastructure then we'd need both 75% of councillors to support that change but then it's also got to go out to a public referendum too. Now that was put in place in response to the installation of water meters here in Kapiti. It was that sort of trade-off to as a safeguard against privatising them. So you can see how these mechanisms, uh, I guess, create a, a political minefield for central government to navigate through. Um, but also for us as, as elected um, councillors as well, because obviously the the government probably wants us to make a decision without having 78 referendums across the country but actually we put these provisions in place for good reason because our communities wanted those assurances and their protections around the ownership of their water so there's this big tension playing out in the sector at the moment now central government's case is that these new water entities will through operational efficiencies and access to more and cheaper debt be able to deliver economies of scale that re will result in smaller water bills versus allowing councils to continue to operate those water services as they currently do. There's a fair bit of debate about the accuracy of the government's numbers and the assumptions underpinning them and that's all something for another issue of this, of this podcast where I'll focus solely on this reform. And you'll see a lot of that play out uh, in the public arena, I think, over the, uh, the coming weeks as that uh, gets down to crunch time. Now, these new entities, they would be indirectly owned by the local authorities within the uh, geographical boundaries of each of them. And there'd be a governance board made up of a representative mix of councils, but not all councils within that area with an equal number of representatives from Iwi who live in that area too. That governance board then would appoint an independent selection panel, which then in turn 
uh, recruits or appoints the board of directors for the new entities with a recruitment and a selection process aimed at competency-based appointments rather than uh, political-based appointments. Now, the idea behind this governance structure is to give these new water entities enough separation from local government so that their balance sheets can be fully separated too. That means that um, these water entities can borrow at a higher debt-to-revenue level than councils are currently permitted to, and that that debt won't get counted against um, the balance sheets of the various local authorities that technically would still own these. Um, it would also mean that these uh, entities wouldn't pay dividends back to councils, that's part of the deal in terms of separating the balance sheets, and that uh, where they, if they did make a profit, they would reinvest any of that into improving services uh, or reducing costs. This uh, model would also mean that the entities are much further removed from accountability to the communities they serve than local government currently is, even though um, those new entities will have various consultation requirements placed on them and they'll have to respond to statements of a, intent and te mana or te wai, statements from local iwi as well. Now central government has also talked about putting in protections against privatisation but it's worth noting that any protections they put in place are only as secure as the political will of a future government. Um, and that's because you know, they, if they could get 75% majority in Parliament to entrench these reforms, it only requires 50% uh, plus one to repeal those entrenchments. So you can see how that plays out, is that it's a question of political cost is the protection, um, not necessarily, they can't make it impossible. So in theory, if the Three Waters reform progresses as it's currently scheduled, this is all meant to largely be complete around 2025. Now the next big reform is the overhaul of the Resource Management Act. Now that being over three decades old as well, the RMA as it's known has become a behemoth piece of legislation. So in its place, it's proposed to have three pieces of interconnected legislation. These would be the Natural and Built Environment Act, the Strategic Planning Act, and the Climate Adaptation Act. Again, like Three Waters, RMA reform is worthy of an entire episode in itself, if not more, on all those different changes. Um, and I'll get to that down the track as well, because this is going to be going on for quite a while, RMA reform. But I'll quickly skip through some of the big things looking likely to change from local government's perspectives. So the Natural and Built Environments Act will be the main piece of legislation replacing the RMA, and it will work closely with the Strategic Planning Act that I mentioned. It will set out how the environment is to be protected and enhanced when future resource consents or whatever the sort of, I guess, the permission to do something is granted, and it will include stronger recognition of Te Ao Māori and uh, Treaty of Waitangi principles, and it will include a new set of mandatory national policies and standards, including environmental limits, outcomes and targets. Then there's the Strategic Planning Act, and that's meant to reform the way that local and central government plan for land use, um, with new long-term integrated spatial strategies across 14 regions. Um, and they would identify what land is suitable for development, what needs to be protected or improved, what's supporting infrastructure, both physical things like um, 
roads, public transport, schools, hospitals, but also your social services, they'll underpin that as well. So what needs to be provided to enable those plans? And also what the vulnerability of land is to natural disasters and climate change. Now, a big change for local government under the Strategic Planning Act would be the creation of 14 new joint regional planning committees, which will develop these new regional spatial spatial strategies. And essentially, it encompasses the work of both district planning that local authorities do at the moment and natural resource planning that regional authorities do. These regional planning committees will have representatives uh, from the various government departments as well as representatives from iwi and at the moment they'd also have a representative from each of the local authorities within that region covered by that um, spatial strategy. Now this is a big change from what we have now where each local authority develops its own district plan and then the regional council develops a natural resources plan that sits over the top of that. Uh, Now in a move sort of not I guess dissimilar to the three waters reform that also would potentially mean that decisions and accountability about um, those spatial strategies become somewhat removed from the communities who are impacted from them, Uh, sorry impacted by those those decisions. Now finally there's the climate Adaptation Act, and this would deal with the technical, um, the technical complexities and massive financial costs associated to adapting to the impacts of climate change, especially for coastal and flood-prone areas. So it's things like managed retreat or seawalls are hugely expensive, and that's an experience um, that we've gone through here in Kapiti recently, and we're going to be going through over the next few years actually. And they involve actually political landmines for all involved. And that's something that we've already seen with one of the attempts at, I guess, apportioning the costs um, for managed retreat, which was in Hawke's Bay. And that fell over because of the politics involved in terms of who pays for what and what sort of level of cross-subsidisation you have. So that this Climate Adaptation Act is looking to try and address that. So the timeline for RMA reform is that the Natural and Built Environments Act and the Strategic Planning Act will be formally introduced to Parliament in 2022. Um, There's an exposure draft of the Natural and Built Environments Act that's already been consulted on. The Climate Climate Adaptation Act, uh, which is also meant to be progressed over this time period too, that's going to come further down the track and I presume we'll get a uh, hopefully get an exposure draft of the Strategic Planning Act as well. Now as to when these pieces of legislation will actually get passed or when they'll come into force is much more of an open-ended question as you know we're looking at reworking three decades of RMA legislation so that's not an easy task. Now finally we get on to the review into the future for local government which is also the most recently announced of those reform programs. Now, in my opinion, this probably should have been first cab off the rank in terms of deciding what's best for local government to be responsible for and how do you finance that. Um, And then you reform the bits that you want to be managed separately or managed outside of local government. Um, But we have to deal with the situation that we're in, that three waters and RMA reform are happening and that they're going to radically change things. And so this review sort of looks at what falls out of that. So the big purpose of this is what is the shape, function and funding 
of local government going to look like post those two big reforms, RMA and Three Waters. The review is going to consider what type of local government system should we have that's going to be resilient and sustainable? Is it going to be fit for purpose? And is it going to be flexible enough to adapt to future needs so that you're not, in theory, having to come back in three decades' time and um, make significant changes to it again? It's going to look at how to design a local government system that is going to build public trust and confidence in local authorities and the regulatory systems that we're responsible for either developing or enforcing on behalf of central government. And the review is going to look at um, how a future system of local government can create a more effective partnership between mana whenua and local government and how to more actively integrate the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi into local government's functions and processes. So basically, the review is pretty much going to look at everything, the roles, the functions and partnerships of local government, the representation and government's require, governance required to oversee that, and the funding and finance needed to enable that all. Now, local government minister Nana Mahuta has said that nothing is off the table for the review in terms of possible structures, financing arrangements and functions, with the exception that the review's, I guess, got to um, stay away from commenting on things like Three Waters or RMA reforms, um, but it has to incorporate what the impacts of those will be in terms of its uh, recommendations. So the review panel is, at the time of writing, looking at presenting an interim report to the Minister on their uh, direction of travel by the 30th of September 2021. I don't know how that's been impacted by the recent uh, the recent COVID-19 alert level uh, 4 and 3 lockdowns because that may have impacted some of their ability to travel around the country and um, talk to local government and get soundings about the issues we're facing. Uh, but then the next phase of that would be that they're going to produce a draft report and recommendations being issued for public consultation by 30 September 2022 and then a final report being presented by 30 April 2023. Now already the timeline for this is coming under some pressure with feedback to the review panel suggesting that uh, dropping their draft recommendations only days out from the 2022 local government elections probably isn't the best way to go about things because you can just picture um, how they'll be instantly turned into political footballs and not a uh, dissimilar way to what I guess we're seeing happen with Three Waters and I'm guessing will happen with RMA reform down the track. So there's a bit of a debate about whether the review panel should uh, try and bring forward their draft report um, and bring it forward to a head of nominations for next year's local government elections so that people who are thinking of standing, I guess, can make an informed decision about what about whether they can understand given the, uh, the structures that might be in place and the sort of issues they're going to have to decide on, which will be pretty chunky issues. Um, or whether they push back those uh, that draft report until after next year's local body elections. Though that sort of means, I guess, you're dealing with a new intake of councillors and mayors across the country to bring up to speed on the review. So those are the big three reforms facing local government. And there's a lot of there's obviously a lot of other changes happening around um, that are also going to impact this sector. But like I said at the start, this is an introductory um, and an overview episode, the very first of the podcast, and it's probably a bit longer than I what what I'm hoping a normal episode will be. So we'll start to wrap it up there. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed the first episode of Local Aotearoa and that you stay tuned for the next one, which I'm hoping will be a in-depth dive into the most topical 
issue currently of those big three reforms, which is the Three Waters. Haerera. Authorised by Gwyn Compton, 60 Manly Street, Paraparaumu.